Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone, and welcome on to the show. I'm really glad you could join me as we get the chance to speak with Michael Philpott, who's New Zealand's premier speaking coach. Now, this interview is full of a lot of content, so we're going to get straight into it. But can I just say, I learned a huge amount from listening to Michael and hearing some of his reflections on what it is that can make us all better speakers. I know getting up in front of people is a fear that many of us have, and he really breaks this down into some practical steps, which I know you're going to appreciate. If you do, you might want to check out the more than 170 other interviews in the back catalog because I'm trying to build up a database of the life stories of people who are doing really interesting things and that we all can learn from. Also, be sure to check out the show notes because there's links there to lots of the resources that Michael mentions. And also, we recorded this during lockdown, so it's a Zoom video as well, and that's linked to in the show notes. There's also a whole bunch more content at theseeds.nz. Now let's get into this conversation with Michael. It's a a real pleasure to welcome Michael Philpott to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. No worries. Um, you're someone who's been on my list for a while, actually, because you have carved out a niche of something quite rare, which is a speaker coach. And so I'm really interested to find out about that. And in particular, so what are some of the tips and tricks that, that all of us could learn from? Because um, I think the reality is we all are presenting all day long, aren't we? Um, and so I'd love to find out about that. But before we do that, I always like to just go back in time with people and find out a little bit about their journey so that we then understand why you do what you do today. So in your case, could you just tell us a little bit about where you're from? Where I'm from geographically? Yeah, geographically. And, you know, like I'm talking about early childhood. So, you know, where did you grow up? Primary school years. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. So we're going um, right back. Let's <laughs> go right back. This, this is exciting. Um, so originally born in Hokitika, uh, then transported to Karamea, then from Karamea to Martin, which is, you know, just outside of Bald Satsum, Whanganui, Palmerston North, central kind of North Island. Um, from there uh, into orphanage and foster care. Um, and then from there back with a, a parent and then it, it's kind of bouncing between. So I became one of those, I was one of those kids that grew up uh, a blended kind of person. So I grew up partially Central North Island and partially Christchurch, mm-hmm. and two very unique and different places, which um, I, has, was interesting as a, as a thing growing up. You almost become two different people by being in those environments. Um, from there... Uh, what did that do, I guess, at that early age for your identity if you're moving around so much? Um, did, you, did you have a sense of place or it must have been quite a fractured sort of childhood? Fractured would be really a great description. I, I think classically you become two separate people. So right. the way you, you know the way you dress and behave in one island is significantly different to the way you dress and behave in another island. Um, one is predominantly holidays. The other one is school and education and rules. And you know it, it definitely creates the potential for a split in the in the psyche of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it takes a lot of years to, to mold back together. Um, but no, it, it definitely had a big impact on becoming who I am now and understanding people better, I think. I think one of the key things that I find 
is that growing up in those two separate places and you know I lived in Auckland as well I lived in lots of different areas you become the person that has to make friends so you're going into other people's environments their cliques you know these are people that have grown up together all their lives and you are the outsider so I think one of the one of the skills that has crossed over through my life has been the person who has always been in the position to build relationships Right. Whereas for other, for other people, they are kind of like, who are you? What are you doing? What are you wanting to, why do you want to come into our group type thing? Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's a skill that a lot of people in potential, potential uh, early childhood environments grow up having to learn that skill. Um, and then, of course, they become a coach and teach other people how to do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically, because uh, I guess a, a traditional childhood would be, well, I'm from this town I go to this school, John over there, I've known since I was four years old and Jane over there, that's my cousins, you know, so it's very, it's very close and you know who you, who you know, whereas in your context, you were having to go in and and introduce yourself and become part of these new places. Yeah. So you're, you're always the outsider uh, coming in and you are primarily looking to put other people at ease. Um, to build liking and trust quickly because you are the stranger. Um, And and I think travellers, you know, proper, not tourists, but travellers know that feeling and they understand the the feeling of needing to to build rapport quickly with people. Mm. Interesting. So just as a little rabbit hole, I think we're going to have lots of rabbit holes, but how do you build rapport with people quickly? Like, were you learning those skills at a young age? Did you, you... probably now you can reflect back and think about it, but what were some of the tips or tricks that you had even at a young age to do that? Well, it's ironic, you know, like for me, for me as a person, it would be, I became relatively agreeable quite quickly. Um, and I tended not to have too many personalized opinions on things. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this is probably an area that, that is helpful in my role in my job now is I can coach anyone because I'm not, super opinionated in any area, you know, live and let live, do as you want, as long as it harms none type thing. Um, that, that would probably be one of them for rapport. Uh, and if I do disagree with something, that's fine, uh, but I'm not reactive to it. I can t- slow it down and process it and then come back later on. I don't need to be reactive, um, which also is helpful in my coaching. It comes across as non-judgmental, which I think for a lot of people is what they want. Like we're all weirdos. Uh, we just don't want to be judged on it. Mm. And I think with my upbringing, because it's been so so all over the place, so scattered, as I said, I was in foster care as well, orphanage. Um, I am I lack judgment on other people. Mm. And what's interesting is I hear a lot of secrets from people, and I often find that their secrets are a lot less uh, large when they actually say it out loud as they think it is comparative to some of the things that I've heard through my, through my lifetime. Right. Um, so I think the, the rapport comes from, yeah, being non-judgmental, being open, and um, not, not having overly strongly held opinions around anything in, in a way that is, um, I'm not easily offended by other people's opinions on things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, and then you get into the technical aspects, obviously, of um, which I guess I consciously wouldn't have been doing when I was young. But um, now, as a speaker coach and an investment pitch coach, it would be the physiology of, of what that looks like. Mm. Which, ironically, is just 
the simplest one that's ever ever been for anyone is smiling and being, right. and being approachable. Yeah. But I'm I'm still endlessly surprised that by how many people are taken by that one. They cannot comprehend the just smiling uh, and being approachable. How much of an impact right. there's on people? Yeah. Having open body language, right? Like the yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Interesting. So I, I've never had anyone on the podcast before who had experience growing up in an orphanage. What what was that like? Like um, in my mind, I'm thinking TV shows and movies and things that I've seen. But what was your experience? Um, uh, horrific, actually. Um, so in in the orphanage I was in, it was it was the Christchurch Methodist Home which was here, um, it, it, it got burnt down. So when it, when it closed finally in 1990-something, it was um, set fire to arson. So I think that gives a little bit of a hint to the environment that was there. Right. But um, so there, it, it was a very bad place. Um, but as, as a general overall, uh, it was just institutionalized would be the best uh, dis- description I can give. So mm-hmm. there, there are environments that you go into, like hospitals and orphanages and maybe prisons even, and there's just one distinct thing about them. Their hallways are too wide. Hmm. <laughs> they right. are strangely wide, um, and there is a smell to them that, that you can definitely, that, that crosses over all those places. Um, but those, those are my memories from it, uh, some of them. Mm-hmm. But what I, what I find, and this, this probably ties into my overall narrative of what I do, is um, there are a few situations in the orphanage where uh, we were told to speak up about things whilst you were being beaten, you know, hit, it, hit for something. And what happened was I was a quiet child. And through those experiences, I learned to say nothing to stay safe. So it's ironic that and I became a very repressed young person, which grew into a very uh, angry, uh, middle-aged, uh, you know, teenager, mm-hmm. um, who couldn't express themselves adequately, properly. So ironically, now that I coach people to, to speak well and probably dig deeper into their feelings and emotions when they do talk as well. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. Well, that's why I love the podcast, because we end up talking about sort of people's backgrounds and origins and then you start making these links and thinking oh it's really yeah so so guide us through the next sort of few years and i i guess the teenage years or the you know going to to school high school sort of time um yeah what what was life like then so um pretty much it, it was a popping back back and forth between the two um two islands between wanganui and christchurch wanganui christchurch my mother ended up getting a role as the uh, a job back in the day uh, with the North Shore Times. She was the editor of the North Shore Times. And we ended up moving to Auckland for, I think it was about nine months or something. It was crazy. Um, she, her employers found out that she was gay and she got fired. Um, so we ended up being, you know, driving back to the to the South Island and, and getting back into life as, as it was before I left. Uh, from the end, just yeah, bounce back and forth. My teenage years were were different. So one of the things that people don't know about me, I don't talk about it very often, if at all. Uh, I left school when I was fourteen, but I started leaving school when I was thirteen and a half. So right. 
I used to take Fridays officially off school to work for New, new Look Windows uh, manufacturing. So we made the, the window frames. Mm-hmm. And I used to take Fridays off school to do that. And by 14, and I was just over it. I was done with school. I wanted to get out of there. Mm-hmm. So 14 and a half, I got special permission from the education board to leave. And my first job, official job out of school was at Tendicus Meats, working in the Lucky Dog Roll factory, making dog rolls. Wow. <laughs> I was 14 and a half years old. And I remember my first paycheck was because they used to do it in the paper, you know, brown envelopes. And it yeah. was a wad of cash, 450 bucks. At 14 wow. and a half years old. <laughs> I, I just thought it was awesome. It was amazing, you know. Um, it didn't last very long. So I left there and I went into building. So I became a builder's laborer, a, a carpentry apprentice. Uh, from there, I went into uh, fishing boats, uh, a gill net trawler based out of Wanganui, where we used to spend four or five days out at sea. Um, I was referred to as the street kid. I didn't own shoes. I didn't really have anywhere I lived at that time. Mm. Um, and I uh, turned out to be one of the best deckhands that that ever had. And it was, it was there, there again was a really cool experience. I think it was an experience that probably saved me from a lot of the troubles that my friends were getting into at that time because I was away from shore. So right. while they were all getting into trouble, I was just at sea. Mm. But um, that said, I must say that I, because of my job and because of my appearance, I appeared older than I was. So by 16, I was drinking in bars. Mm-hmm. Uh, with you know, without ever being inquired to my age, because it was just you know, just assumed. Yeah. Just assumed, you know. He's the guy that works on the fishing boats. Yeah. Um, so I, I kind of went through all of that. Grew up very quickly. That, that fishing boat experience. I'm just curious, how long were you going out for? Like, was it for a week or two weeks? Or generally, generally a week. So we were a we were a 50 or 60 foot gill net uh, trawler with a four man crew. Hmm. Yeah, um, horrendous experience. It just again, you know, it, it hardened me up. Um, it definitely hardened me up. I mean, I've grown up with a work ethic. Um, obviously, wanting to leave school early anyway. Yeah. Um, and up until up until my thirties, or I think I always worked physically um, before I even started thinking about reeducation. But mm. um, no, it was yeah, four to five days. Again, you know, hard work. Strangely mm. hard work. Is something you can't measure. Um, I, I used to, people say, you know, what does it feel like working out there? And it was like, I always described it as being in a bathtub full of potatoes with water splashing everywhere whilst having to peel the potatoes at the same time. Right. Yeah. 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 I think my, my father um, was on um, some boats up near Alaska. And right. so he's told me a bit about his experiences and it was very, very cold water. You know, mm-hmm. if you were, if you went over, you were in, big, big trouble. Um, but he's described some of those experience, some of the, sh- you know, some of the storms and the, yeah. you were going up and down, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, well that's, that's a funny thing. So you just reminded me, um, there was the storm of the century movie that was based on true accounts of the, the three weather patterns that all clumped together and created this horrendous thing. Um, I was at sea at the back end of that storm mm. and in a 60 foot boat, uh, the only the only boat I'd ever been on prior to it was the ferry, and they laughed at me when they said, "Have you ever been on a boat before?" And I was like, "Yeah, I've been on the ferry." And like, <laughs> okay, radio. So um, I recall we were in the storm, and it was it was just madness. The like 
five meter waves when you're in a 60 foot boat are just crazy. Mm. You're just, you're just steaming up these things and it feels like the boat's about to slide backwards down the waves. And we were just, we were just going through this for like eight hours nonstop. And it was so bad that the skipper was vomiting out the door. Like, you know, these are the people who have been at sea all their lives and they, they were actually throwing up because it was so bad. You know, it's pretty bad then, don't you? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember we came back in over the bar one time. So there are three, three worst bars in New Zealand. One's Greymouth, one's Whanganui, and I can't think of the other one offhand, but uh, it might be the Westport. Um, we're, so we're, the, we're one of the worst bars, and we were coming across it one time, and it was one of those situations where it was so bad that for the first time ever on the boat, I heard them go, get the life jackets out, put them on and take your clothes off. <laughs> wow. So we were, we were literally sitting in our undies with life jackets on going across the bar because it, there was a potential that we might actually sink. Right. So yeah, just these strange experiences. Yeah. Wow. So how long did you do that? Did you, did eventually you moved on obviously? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So eventually I moved on. I moved on because my, my, it was it was just yeah it was one of those things you loved it when you were there to a degree and then when you got to the end of it you just wanted to never do it again mm-hmm. and then you got heaps of food and you felt good again and then you know you had a pause from it and went okay i'm going back but kind of at the end of it every time you wanted to quit um and then you got sucked back into it so after a period the boat got put on dry dock and i took the opportunity to move back to the south island mm-hmm. um where i got back into building and stuff like that and then got drawn away again to the North Island uh, for, a, I think it was for something else, a sh- like a shearing course or something I wanted to do. So mm-hmm. all, like I say, very physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, at that time, I think the police started to show a bit of an interest in my life as well. So I was at one stage actually removed from the North Island officially um, by the police and told not to live there for a year. Because mm-hmm. I got into trouble for, for rioting ironically um that was that was again in my teenage years so from there it just sort of lots of merry goes and roundabouts came back to the south i had a horrific car accident um at one stage and i think that was one of my life-changing moments mm. where i kind of snapped out of it i uh, i'd been living on in in the west coast in complete isolation for about six months and uh had this car accident in uh, in Ranura, and then um, at the end of it just went right I'm going to do something different so I, I signed up for to do an outdoor recreation training course mm. and I got into outdoor guiding mm. uh, I then went and worked out at the YMCA for a couple of years and I worked really well with youth at risk um, ironically mm. um, had, had some empathy there yeah and from there you know I, I, I worked with Canadians in the outdoor guiding which was amazing because Canadians their view of camp life is very different to ours so in New Zealand, sending kids to camp is, you know, kind of almost a punishment, you know, get rid of your kids over Christmas, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's not a real joy for them. It's, if anything, it's kind of repetition. In, the, in Canada, it's a privilege. You know, it's a real privilege to go to camp and it's something they look forward to. Generally, the people that have worked in the camps have been there as children, grown up through it, and then gone back and wanted to work in there. So they, they're right. just indoctrinated into camp life. So I got to work with these a team of them, and it just changed my whole outlook on, on dealing with people. So I guess my people thing really started there. Mm. You know, I, running it's interesting all, that you were able to use your background or your you know your own 
childhood, your own teenage years had had a big influence and then you're able to reach out to this, the, to youth as well. Yeah. But it was just someone who had, had a lot of life experience at a young age. So I still had the youth, um, but I had the experience. Uh, whereas generally people working in those fields are a lot older to have the experience to be able to relate, but they can't connect because they're not the same age. You know, there's right. such, a, such a gap between ages. Yeah. Uh, so from there, it just, from there, it kind of took off. It led into uh, working for a company called Full On, which ran um, uh, event conferences for, you know, across Australasia. So we did a lot of cool stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, big events like the Great Race and all those types of things before they became on TV. Uh, we did all sorts of cool incentives with companies like IBM and, you know, we deal with up to 360 people from around the world. We'll come to New Zealand, we'll, we'd have really cool two-day events with them. So from there, it went into, they scored a contract working with the American Ambassador Program, People to People, where Americans would travel around the world and we would have them for a day running an intensive one-day personal development program where we would invoke fear by throwing them off of a cliff um, and then ask them how they overcame the fear of that and how they could transfer that into other aspects of their life. Right. Um, my boss was a bit of a hard nut in the outdoor guiding and he said, you know, you need to have FIC, so pre-hospital emergency care, so the highest level of, of, um, of, of uh, first aid. And you also need to qualify in NLP to become a proper senior guide, as well as obviously having your outdoor uh, rock climbing qualifications and stuff. Mm-hmm. So this is where NLP came into my life, which is, you know, neuro-linguistic programming, which is something that I've carried right through all the work I do. And then it just went on. Someone spotted me who worked in corporate uh, and their client, and this is going to sound strange, their client was New Zealand Police, IRD, FMG, um, and Cigna Insurance and big, big corporate groups. And they said, you know, the way that you work with people in the outdoors and with the personal development, you would probably work really well with us with performance coaching. So they trained me and brought me in to train New Zealand Police. Wow. Yeah. So defeat, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I've, I've, I've left a few little holes in there, but, you know, it was really ironic that I ended up becoming a trainer for New Zealand Police and for, for New Zealand Fire Service. And what it was, what it really tied it together was they'd had management trainers coming in who were doing textbook work, and my background was um, real risk opposed to perceived risk. So in my job... Uh, putting people off large cliffs, real danger, um, there's a different way of coaching, a different method. And the police had become really irritated because all these people that came in were doing perceived risk. Whereas in their job, it's real risk. And if they make a mistake, people die, and it goes on the front, front page of the newspaper. So I came in just going, no, no, no. If, if something's going wrong, you stop it, and then you coach through afterwards. You don't let it happen and then coach through the process. And this is what they were being taught. So I come in and just go, there's no way. If someone's going to fall off a cliff, I have to step in and stop it. And they're like, finally, someone gets it. This is really right. cool. So I, I had a really good rapport there from my own background and experience. So I used to run a two-day, uh, basically train the trainer on coaching. I taught the police for the command center how to coach their internal staff. Right. Uh, and I did that for five years. Mm. Which, I mean, obviously... Uh, that was my NLP background, so I did a lot of rewriting of the programs when I came in and redevelopment and redelivery. Um, that's what set me up as a coach. Right. Yeah, because I, ne- I never wanted to go down the path of um, coaching, life coaching. I didn't want to do life coaching. I, it was an area I didn't want to dig into, but um, performance coaching is something that resonated really well with me. 
Right. It's just fascinating hearing that, you know, the, the journey. And that's what I love to hear is how one, how one area that you get involved in, you know, the outdoor adventure type of things, then that leads to something which leads to something. And I think it's important to highlight that, that sort of transition or movement because lots of the people are listening. They, they will never become what you've become. But if they can start identifying in their own lives, sort of, oh, I actually have a real interest in this. And then what does that lead on to? I think that's uh, it's really helpful. So, yeah, thank you. No, no worries. I mean, it's called transferable job skills, right? So, mm. you know, we often separate out what a skill is and we only leave it in that box. I, uh, partway through my journey, I ended up becoming a career practitioner as well. So I used to run six-week return-to-work programs for ACC for LTCU, which is Long-Term Claims Unit. So imagine getting a room full of 13 people who have got a file that's been in the darkest part of the basement of ACC for the last 20 years. ACC pulls the file out, gives it to a provider and says, you've got six weeks to get these people into a job and returning to work. Go. So <laughs> you can imagine these, you know, you're, you're walking into a room with 13 people that are very annoyed um, at the fact that, you know, well, how do I get a job? Where do I start? So we, we had a multidisciplinary team that would do a return to work program. And we had the highest return to work rates in New Zealand for, for the work we did. And part of that is that I used to actually take them out and put them off the abseil, <laughs> which ACC hated the idea that we got special permission. But the whole idea was if you can do this, then what else can you do, you know? Right. Um, but I, I think there's, there's just something in there at the moment. I think transferable job skills are going to be really important in our current situation that we're in with, with the unemployment that's coming from COVID-19, stuff like that. And I think it's really cool, you know, like what are the skills, the underlying skills that you have that make you who you are today, not individualized things for different jobs. Yeah. Um, otherwise, people just apply for things, you know, they see jobs advertised. It's like, oh, I could never do that because I don't have that skills. It's like, of course you have those skills. You just haven't identified it in that way. Yeah. And the interesting thing there, just picking up on that, is that it's probably called something different in the yeah. other career or whatever it is. Like, I'm just thinking in my own life. I, I was an English teacher in Japan for a year when I was 20. Um, so I learned very early on how to ask questions, how to explain things. And now I realize that doing this podcast, it's such a natural progression from being in a one-on-one -on -one teaching somebody how to learn English to now doing this type of interview. But it's not something where you would say, okay, the English teacher, the podcaster, it's yeah. not a direct link, but yeah. thinking about it, it's very, very much influences how I, how I'm able to do this. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Very. Like you say, you wouldn't have identified at the time, like back then when you were doing it, you would go, you know, one day I'm going to do podcasts. It, but the, the fundamental skills came from there. And yeah. they're very, very transferable. And you're right in the name of things. So I remember when I was younger, I used to, because I worked in the forestry for a while as well, doing um, tree surgery. And I never knew that when I was going through the newspaper, when it said silver culture, that it was actually cutting down trees. It was working with trees, but it was the name that was missing. So, you know, tree surgery or forestry worker and silver culture, there are three different terms for the same type of work. Mm. And if you didn't know that, you would miss it. And you'd just go, oh, that's, that works not for me. You know? Yeah. To a degree, I think that you need people around you that kind of look at it and go, you can so do that job. 
Yeah. You've got, you've definitely got the skills. Yeah. So, you know, because we doubt ourselves and I'm, I'm terrible for, for that myself, you know. It's like, no, no, you, you do have those skills. You do that all the time. You just can't identify it. And picking up on that, how often do we look back in our lives and realize it was this person who said, you should try it, go for it. And yeah. on the podcast, this comes out a lot where people don't believe in themselves. They don't think they can do it, but then they have a conversation or somebody says, you should definitely apply. And then their whole life sort of trajectory changes. And I think what you say is really important with COVID-19 and the response, mm-hmm. you know, that people probably think need to think pretty creatively about what they've done in the past and maybe most importantly, what they've loved about what they've done in the past, yeah. which bits can they now extract and potentially do something totally. on, a, on a tangent. Totally. totally. Yeah. And, and to a degree, they'll need a bit of help with that as well. I think. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's a matter of writing down what the job, what the job title is and then what are the actual skills? So, a lot of the skills that are needed are people skills and people don't identify that they have actual people skills um, because they're, they're regarded as the soft skills, but these are the skills that we need. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Empathy is a good one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I was talking with Shamabil Yakub, who's an economist um, for the podcast recently. And it was fascinating because he's an economist. So you'd think it would be all about percentages and GDP and things. But what we ended up talking about was the sort of idea of holistically viewing people rather than how much money do they make, but actually looking at more of that well-being sort of approach of a holistic view. And we end up talking about love and kindness, you know, and, and that these are the essential things like strip away the econo- economic words and it yeah. comes back to basic things that um, we wouldn't necessarily associate with economy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Those are words from an economist, are they? Yeah, it was, it was actually a fun interview. Yeah. yeah. So now you are a speaker coach. Just talk us through that, because I know when we first met a couple of years ago in Christchurch, I know you were helping out with TEDx Christchurch, and um, was that part of the transition, or, or how did you um, come to do what you do now? Okay, so I'll, I'll try and make it quick. Uh, I, when I was doing the corporate stuff, my boss died. She got cancer and died. So my work there, um, unfortunately, everything stopped. Um, I ended up doing some work in prisons, um, which was very interesting. A whole different story right there. Um, I, I ended up getting to a point where it was like, I, I should maybe just be working for myself. So it was after the earthquakes, um, which was probably not a great time, but it ended up working out. Um, I started my own, my wife and I started our own training and development company. We started working with companies like um, Meridian, uh, Fulton Hogan. We were doing a lot of comms training around there um, and it, it extended into self-surgeon training, all sorts of stuff, uh, uh, train the trainer, all sorts of bits and pieces like that. And then from there, um, I ended up running into Erica Austin, and Erica kind of introduced me into the whole thing. She had a presentation or something, and I just gave her some, you know, a few tips and tricks around how to do some presentations. And I think it might have been for coffee and jam. Um, and it, you know, it just started from there. And and then Erica said, "Hey, you know, you should probably be the speaker coach because we don't have one for for TEDx." And that would probably be the pivoting moment in my life. So I didn't realize it at the time, but that was it. So, you know, I ended up doing a lot of work with, you know, uh, Ministry of Awesome, helping out there with people, with prepping, and got invited in, come and help out with TEDx. 
So the first year was the Isaac Theatre Royal. So it was the biggest one that they'd ever done. It was the biggest one in, Christ, uh, in New Zealand. And I ended up working with uh, Annalise Twimlow and her mother, Robin. Annalise was like 11 years old or something with Tourette's. Um, and I ended up coaching. And again, my background in just being me and empathetic was really helpful. Uh, mm. Most of my time was, you know, just, just sort of being non-judgmental around it and putting people at ease. Um, they ended up delivering a cool talk. I went into the next year and the next year and the next year. So I think it ended up about four years within it. Um, but I mean, the highlight from the, the highlight from TEDx. So to give you, to give context, TEDx, I was part of the overall committee, which uh, consisted of you know eight to sixteen people, depending on the size of the event that we were we were tackling. Yeah. Uh, I was part of the speaker selection committee as well. So that was a group of four of us that would select the actual speakers that we wanted. And then I was the speaker coach too. So I was very, uh, bearing in mind it's a voluntary role. So I was very tied into that. I had mm. I invested a lot of my time, energy and effort into mm. that. And you mentioned, just before we go on, you mentioned that that was a real critical juncture, a, a point. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember, you know, talking with Erica, she introduced you. Erica has been on the podcast as well, actually. So her life story is there, but um, that sort of that moment or um, were you talking with Kyla or how did it come about that? It was like, Oh, okay, I can do this. I'm going to, I'm going to. So uh, Erica introduced me to Kyla basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they just, you know, yep. Sounds good. It's a good fit. Um, the skills are there for sure. Um, bring them in. So I just, I just literally just came in and I, and I just, so the way we worked was I would walk, walk, work alongside Kyla. Kyla would generally take care of the, um, the content curation to a degree. Yeah. Um, and I would take care of the physiology, the delivery and, and that type of stuff. Over time, um, probably more into the second year, I, uh, I, I spent a lot more time with the speakers Kyla would just kind of like give it the once over, help with the curation a bit, but I was spending a lot more time around curation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think 2017 is where I was really in my stride with it. So that's where uh, my wife invited um, uh, Lilia Tarawa along. And obviously that's, that blew out. That became huge. So Lilia, uh, you know, I grew up in a cult. It was heaven and hell. Mm -hmm. Um, which has become kind of the signature of my coaching. Uh, Lydia's goal back then was to get a staggering, she wanted 3 million views, you know, and it was huge. You can imagine, so you tell your speaker coach, yeah, I, I want to get 3 million views. You're like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what we can do about that. So, I mean, yeah. that, that probably was my real turning point there um, yeah. with that because um, – there was a lot more NLP coaching in that process with Lydia Mm. Um, and then the outcome of it. So Lydia ended up, you know, how I went about that to help create that was one thing, which was obviously look at, which is in the work I do now, which was like, what are the titles of talks that are currently out there? Mm -hmm. So I looked around at that time and one of the titles was I, I escaped a Baptist church or something like that. Yeah. And at the time I looked at it comparatively for what kind of impact a title was having on the outcome of that talk. And um, I think that talk had been around for seven months and it had 140,000 views. And I thought, well, if that's the title, then the title needs to be better for, for Lilia's one and the viewership, you know, obviously will go up because it's all about getting those people to click on it and watch it because that's yes. what your numbers, but you have to have it clickable. Um, you know, you have to entice them with a the title. So titles are a major thing. But anyway, 
So we curated the talk. It took about three months, um, and we were catching up once a week. At the first stages, when we when, when I was talking to Lilia, she was kind of like, oh, this will be really sweet because I've just written my book. I'll just take a piece out of my book, and I'll, I'll pretty much just read that out almost. And I'm like... Right. Yeah, we'll just copy-paste a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. and my reaction was like, there is no way you're doing that. You are so not allowed to do that Um, because that would be boring, right? It's like, why would you give a talk about something that can be read in your book? And Mm. I just said to her, I said, I want you to tell me what you couldn't write in the book. (laughs) And um, that's kind of where the process began. And there was a, a lot of, a lot of, you know, even herself, she says, you asked me about 100,000 questions yeah. to, to dig down into it. There was a lot of reconnecting with, with stuff and there was a lot of realisation through that process as well. But mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the key things with Lydia's talk was the instead of alienating and isolating, the occult is so different to the world we live in, it was actually looking at the parallels between the cult and the, real, and the world we live in as well. Right. And under the under the uh, view of how do people control people in cults and how do people control people in the world outside, such as in you know families controlling, relationships controlling, uh, employers controlling. So so we were looking at through that view. What was the more common thing rather than what makes them different? What makes them the same? Mm. Um, well, I'm glad we're talking about this because in a way this this summarizes some of what you're doing today as well, isn't it? Yeah. And that's yeah. what I, where I wanted to get to. So, yeah. and um, that talk, I, I just had a quick look. It's up to 8.99 million views. So it's, <laughs> it's done. Oh, that's a lot of clicks, isn't it? Um, can you just talk us through a little bit more on that process of helping her to, to come up with the content and, and then how to deliver it? Because I think it, I agree. It's an, I think the key thing is that, you can relate to what she's talking about. Like she's, she's describing real people, real situations. You know, this, this boy's brought up in front of the class and he's, and he's just hit with the belt. And, and it's like, you can almost imagine yourself there, but, and, and she does that with several different people and it it makes it really real with the photos and things as well. But just talk us through that process. Maybe that, that would be helpful. So the process, I mean, there are, the, the process, and this, this is where it gets interesting, right, is like there is no set process for, for any person. I don't have a model that it goes mm. through. I have concepts and ideas and models potentially, and you kind of try different fits for different people. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's kind of intuitive. It either feels right and feels real and feels connected, or it feels not that, which will be false and, and lacking, and there's, you know, inauthentic. So I'm always going for the authentic. So with, with Lilia, it was kind of like, just explain to me, you know, just between you and me in this room, just tell me about the process. Tell me what it was like. Tell me this. Tell me that. And you, you take all of that content and then you thin it down into what's important, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I think one of, the, one of the key things I always ask people when, whenever I start coaching them, I ask them to identify two, the answer to two key questions. So one is, what do you want from your talk, you know? So for Lydia, it was, I want it to reach 3 million views, da, 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 da. And then the other question is, what do you want people to do at the end of your talk? And this is, this is the complete mindset changing question. Because whenever people get up and speak, it's generally all about them. As in, it's all about me. I hope I don't do a bad job. I hope I don't muck it up. I hope I don't do this. So it's very self-orientated. And if, if you spend your focus there, you will perpetuate those outcomes. So if you're worried about making a mistake, then you'll make a mistake. But if you focus on what you want people to do at the end of your talk, 
the focus goes off you and goes on to your audience. What do you want them to get from it? So that's kind of the, that's the mind shift there that happens for mm. people. So with that in mind, with Lilia, it became not about telling her story so much in that way, but it came, what do you want people to do at the end? I want people to realize that the worlds are not that dissimilar. So what happened is by identifying that, you now curate the narration of your talk with an outcome in mind rather than just sort of all sorts of, all sorts of different ideas. So you pinpoint a, an outcome that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. So that, that would be the one part. And then just endless, 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 endless questions and then preparation. So uh, one of the cool things that Lilia really had in her favor is that growing up in the cult, they didn't have TV. So for 17, 18 years, she was never influenced by TV. Um, they did a lot of um, re- so um, acting, uh, rock, doing plays. So Christmas, Easter, you know, right. all of the things. It's, it's entertainment themselves. So she was very good um, theatrically already. So she had the skills there. Um, and then it was just alignment. But there's a couple of other keys as well. So it, was, it would have been really easy for Lydia's talk to delve way too far down into an emotional, um, an emotional hole, right? So, you know, uh, the story could have all been very, very negatively charged, you know, mm-hmm. and emotionally pulling you down. And you would consider that to be emotionally monotone. You know, you, you could be speaking the whole time really excited, and mm-hmm. that's still a monotone. It's excited the whole time, and it doesn't give the audience relief. So at some stage, you need to take them on that flow of high and a low and a high and a low. And you need to structure your storyline in a way that takes people through that. Because if you hold them too high for too long, they're going to run out of energy. And if you hold them too low for too long, they're going to come out at the end of your talk feeling depressed. Mm. So you, you have to curate in a way that balances. And Lilia does it. So, you know, she starts to talk by going, imagine a beautiful place over here. And then she just, she just takes you on this lovely journey and then she just slams you and holds you there for a little moment, just long enough for you to have a um, physiological shift. Your emotions change. And then she'll just pull you up out of it and then she'll take you along and then she'll slap, slam you on the ground again. Yeah. And what happens is that creates contrast. So contrast means that if it was all down low, you would start to get kind of used to it. You know, like, okay, we've heard all of this, you know, you would get bored with it. And if you were all too high, you would get bored with it as well. So by giving it a contrast, it highlights those points more. So the bad was really bad because it kind of hits you hard. And the good was really good because it's separated by the bad. Mm. And I thought that was interesting in the talk because it, in a way, if we want to use a picture, it's almost like waves going and and you, you get to the crest of the wave and then down and then up and then down. And one of the things I noticed, um, well, it's a really emotional talk. It, it is what she went through, you know, the way she describes it. And you can tell that she's about to cry in places like you can't, you know, you were used the word authentic before. You can't deny the authenticity of the experience. Um, but I thought it was interesting how at the start she describes getting the report card mm-hmm. and how she's very proud. And this is, you know, this is a future leader and, um, she thinks this is going to be a wonderful thing and then it just goes off a cliff and she's <laughs> embarrassed in front of 500 people, you know, and, yeah. but then the interesting thing is I think what you guys probably did or thought it through is the conclusion echoes back to that first story because it, it, it then has an echo and it says, 
I, I became that, that little girl showed the potential of what I've become. And I thought that was really nice uh, to have the beginning with that story and the ending as well was, can you just talk about that? And cause sometimes I see people doing their talks and there's no echoing back between the beginning and the end. It seems to me that's quite an important principle as well. So you've, you've identified something without getting too technical. It's mm -hmm. called an open loop and a closed loop and a hook. So they are, I'll, I'll walk you through them. So the open, the, the hook is kind of the title, right? That's what, that's what gets you in there. Mm -hmm. um, the open loop is that piece. So that, that narrative that leads you in. So in, in that talk, it was, you know, um, uh, we don't want your type here. Um, you know, that was it. So then to basically that's opening the door to a story and then you need to go in a big cycle, come back. And for the listeners, you need to end it unless you're purposely leaving them hanging, but you always want to close the door back up again. So it gives completion. Audiences love completion. So uh, open loop and a closed loop and a hook. So in any talk, it can be done. It just needs to be well thought out how it closes the door back up again for people. Um, I've seen, I've seen uh, really good facilitators, though. I've seen them do the opposite of that on purpose. So they'll open a loop at the start of the day of running a training session, and they'll leave it because it opens your mind to um, curiosity. You know, it opens it up. You're like, you're curious. You want to know more. And then at the end of the day, they went back and they actually closed the loop. And it was stayed open for an entire day. Um, I think a really good example of that is A Thousand and One Arabian Nights. So the concept of, you know, the woman who was with the, the sheik or whatever, and he was every night he was going to, you know, kill her the next day. And every night she would read him a story, but never finish the story. And then he would... She would, um, the next night, he would go, you have to tell me the story. You have to finish it. So it kept him going for, 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 for a long time. And she did that for, a, you know, a thousand and one stories. And in the end, he fell in love with her and didn't, didn't want to kill her. Mm -hmm. And that's the concept, is that just keeping people interested by having an open loop and then closing it. Yeah. It's about, it's about fulfilling that story as well, isn't it? You know, you introduce it and then you conclude it. Because... It's something I've tried to do with any talks that I'm giving to introduce some sort of a picture at the beginning, um, sometimes an image or, or a prop, you know, hold something up and say, what is this? What do you think it is? And then at the very end, refer back to it and say, remember at the beginning, we talked about this thing. Now you can see how it applies. It's that sort of concept, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, very much in pitching, it would be the same. So if you're pitching for investment, so you would have a um, you would have a, a hook in an open loop that might be something like, um, you know, can can we change the world if we change the way that we educate our young people? So that would be your 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 hook and the open loop. Um, and you might make something like, uh, by the end of our time together, I'm going to explain how we can, why it's important, why we did it. And then you would give your talk, and it might be seven minutes for a pitch, and then you would come back and go, so I've just showed you how we can change the way that we do da 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 da, da. And to do this, we need investment. Here we go. You know, so it's, it's like open, close, um, and it's the promise, but it's also the, it's enabling people to re-reflect 
back through everything and it just closes all the doors as they as they go through there was a loose example that i just gave you but it's important in all speaking and as you said with with the examples that you do it could be something as as simple as holding up a physical object like you know metaphorically this is the box that you know a lot of ideas go into and then you give your talk and at the end of it all of these ideas we've just collected go into this box. So it just, it, it helps close yeah. people for sure. I think as well, it's recognizing that people relate in different ways to a talk and some yeah. people are verbal processors and they're, they're listening. But if you have um, a prop or something like you've been to the impact lunches yeah. in the past. And one of the things I've done there is to hold up a cardboard box yeah. and then hold up a beautiful handmade wooden box and say, you know, in your careers and what you do, which type of, thing are you creating and it, i've had feedback on that it's something that like they don't really remember what else i said but <laughs> they do remember he held up two boxes and kind of that that um you know there was some synergy there with their own processes and so yeah. i guess it's about being creative isn't it well it's, it's metaphor right so yeah. people will always come to their own conclusions if you give them the right tools to get there mm -hmm. and oftentimes we're not answering it for them we're giving them a lens through which to view something for themselves with their background and experience. Um, so we're tr trying not to give definites because we leave it open for interpretation, which mm. is the concept of metaphor, yeah, parable metaphor type things. Yeah, no, that's really good. What other what are the skills or or things, particularly if people haven't presented very much or or done very, are there some basic things that that you would guide yep. people through or help them think about? Yeah, for sure. So, so I'll just, I'll try and run through them relatively, you know, a few of them relatively quickly. So the first one is write a script. And this is, you know, I got, I got a big surprise. I was running a, a training workshop a while ago. Um, back in the early days with, when I started into the speaker coaching also, I, I got asked to run something. And it was, it was around pitching for investment. And I said, okay, here we go. You're going to be given this amount of time, go away and write a script. And I got a real surprise when people came back and they literally just had bullet points. So I said, okay, cool. I didn't, you know. Give it a crack, deliver your content, and we'll see what happens. And what happened is they couldn't really identify a, a, a beginning, a middle, an end, uh, and they couldn't replicate it. So I said, when you said this here, just look at your notes and tell me what you said. And it was like, well, I don't know. I didn't, didn't write any notes. And there's this myth, right, that really good speakers don't write scripts. And it's so wrong. Of course they do. But what happens is there's some magic happening, you know. They have delivered that talk probably 20 times in the privacy of their own home based off the script that they wrote. And they've rehearsed it, they've played with it, they've modified it, they've made changes. And by the time you get to see it live, they just don't have a script anymore. And it sounds like they're just off the cuff speaking, you know, every word that comes out of their mouth is gold. And it's like, no, it's not. They've written a script and they've refined it and they've rehearsed it. And then, you know, then you throw the script away. So that would be and the thing is that you realize that when you hear the person in a different context and you yeah. think, I've heard this talk before, and they're pausing at the same point, the same jokes, and then you're like, oh, okay, this is, which is one reason why some paid speakers don't permit things to be recorded, right? Because yeah. that's their value is that they're bringing it. And I've seen that a number of times where it's a paid speaking thing yeah. and, and no recording, and you right. realize that they're going to give that talk tomorrow or a week from now as well and that's why it's such a good talk is because it's it's so well thought out and so well 
exercise that they know the outcome that they're getting from it. Um, someone said to me, well, where's the authenticity around that uh, for the person and how, you know, how are people going to respond? I mean, you've said you've seen it a couple of times. I've definitely seen it a lot of times with my, my coach, who's an American. I, you know, I got to see him deliver in America, Australia, Canada. I watched them. You know, I actually traveled and watched them deliver word for word. And I was like, oh, oh my goodness. Oh. And then it, it got interesting because I got into to the actual background psychology of what was happening with the audience. So instead of watching him, I started watching the audience. And it was amazing because he could read exactly what was going to happen and, and, and interpret it, which was good. But the question is, is, is it authentic and, and how does it work? And I've often said this, do you have a band that you really like? So I'll pose that question to you. Do you have a, a band that you really like? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you own their CD? Yep. And you can listen to that whenever you want. Mm -hmm. If they came to New Zealand, would you go to their concert? I would, yeah. <laughs> but it's the same exact song as what you've got on your CD. You could listen to it, right? Yep. And this is the thing is it's, it's about environment. So it's, it's not just the speaker. It's the people you're going to meet at the, at, the, um, at the event. You're going to feel like it's part of your tribe. You're going to make new friendships. It's not just the speaker. It's more than that. It's what they bring. So that fear of saying the same thing over and over again, Bands do it. That's that's their gig, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and I'm sure that they have the same script <laughs> that they've used <laughs> yeah. multiple times, right? And, yeah, and sometimes they probably say the wrong city name as part yeah. of it. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's probably the only bits they change. But it's about the experience, you know. It's it's the it's the what you can't get through CD. You know, and that would be the same for speakers. You can watch them on YouTube and all that type of stuff. And this is something um, Lydia came to me in the early days um, and she'd been asked to speak at events. And she was like, oh, can I use my TED Talk? And I'm like, of course you can use your TED Talk. Mm. I mean, it's such a beautifully curated talk. Why wouldn't you use it? She was like, I just didn't think that I'd be able to say it again because I've, I've just said it once and it's, you know, it's, on, it's on YouTube. It's like people want to be there to experience that feeling in person. Mm -hmm. It's such an emotional thing, you know, so so that would be it write scripts and it's okay to reuse it with reusing it Just use that opportunity to hone it as well mm -hmm. And around that leads to my next piece, which is video, you know, the best form of feedback you can get is by videoing yourself and then looking at it through an eye of how the audience would be receiving it mm -hmm. Uh, and the, the video doesn't lie. So with all the people I work with, the first thing I do is video them, you know, because I want to see before, during, and after. Yeah. And I, I could tell them 10 times, you know, you keep doing this funny thing with your eye. It's twitching. And they're like, no, I don't. No, I don't. And then I just go, here, look at the video. And they're like, oh, I didn't realize I did that. Yeah. <laughs> as soon as they see it, they're like, I'm never doing that again, you know, because they've seen it themselves. Um, and when we see behaviors in ourselves, we can change them. Mm. So that would be number two, would be video. Number one, and then just picking up on that, I think it's, it's just important to highlight that, that you don't, like you say, you don't know what you don't know. And until you video, until you see yourself, um, I used to work at an international law firm and they had some speaker coaching as part of that. And one of the first things they did was video us. So yeah. then we could watch ourselves and see how many times we said, um, 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 or whatever it was, you know, each of us have those little quirks that you don't realize until you're confronted with the reality of this is how I present. And then it's, and like I say, as soon as you see them or hear them, you're like, okay. <laughs> and it yeah. just goes away. It stops. Yeah. Um, 
that's, that's a kinder way of doing it. I mean, when I started speaking publicly for, for group stuff, we used to have six people, six of our team, in the audience of a hundred and something students, and they would be sitting there with pen and paper, and they would write down every word that we said that was not correctly placed in the right. And at the end of it, they would come up to you and just mob you, you know, like instant feedback. Um, and then if, uh, there was one that always stood out to me, which was because we were doing instructional delivery as well. So it would be everyone stand up, and you've, you've seen me do this. Yeah, yeah. Everyone, everyone stand up, find a partner, reach in, shake hands, say hi, how you doing? So when you start trying to learn how to do that, the natural response, especially for Kiwis, is I want you to stand up. I want you to find a partner. I want you to shake hands. I want you to, right? So the key word that Kiwis use is I want you to. So what we'd have is when we were practicing, if we ever said the words I want you to, our whole team would just stop. This was without the audience. They'd just stop and go, it's all about you, isn't it? <laughs> and they just totally interrupt you mid-sentence. And you, your brain just got so used to being jolted because you kept saying that thing that you ended up just having to remove it because you couldn't continue speaking because mm. it took you away. So, but it takes skill and practice. The same with the ums and ahs. And ums and ahs, we, we know quite clearly that the thing to put in the place of an ums and ahs is a pause. Mm. You know, um, to it's interesting what, what you say there, though. You've said it a couple of times, and I agree with you, which is practice. You yeah. know, that, that I think people do see, like Brene Brown gets up and she talks and it's beautiful. But mm. I'm pretty sure that she's practiced it a couple of times before. Yeah. You know, even, even the bits that seem off the cuff it's likely that those even have been practiced. And, and so I guess it's worth emphasizing, isn't it? If you want to do a good talk, you probably need to have stood in front of a mirror or done it in front of a video or done it, you know, 15 different times. Um, so there, I'll, I'll guess Brene would have, would have practiced. Um, and I know that because <clears throat> there's no way she would have gotten on the TED stage without having to have demonstrated to someone. Yeah. Um, the other part with practice, so I'll just fill that in. So we've got practice, you've got the video. Uh, the other part being is if you're using a clicker, then use the clicker. So click in, get in time, get in unicide with your slides if you're using a slide deck. Mm. The other part no one ever talks about is what are you going to wear? What are the clothes? So this is, in an NLP context, this would be considered anchoring. So you want to do everything in your power to anchor to how you're going to be on the day. And put simply, what that means is if you spend all of your time practicing that in your PJs, in your pajamas, and then on the day you get up and put on a suit, you're going to feel significantly different in your suit to how you did in your pajamas. Mm. Your anchoring has been misaligned. If you're going to deliver it in your pajamas, practice in your pajamas. If you're going to deliver it in your suit, practice in your suit. Right. If you're going to, if it's a big event and you're going to go out and buy brand new clothes for it, like a lot of people would do for Ted, right? Mm. Then you need to especially buy the clothing early and practice in it. Because the last thing you want to do is find out that those clothes you bought are actually uncomfortable. Right. On the day, you want to take everything you can to make it easier for you and make yourself more comfortable. Mm. So that would that would be the 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 piece that lots of people don't talk, think about. The other part being is how do you practice? So with a couple of people I've helped with this, one is uh, most young people's, young children's bedrooms. So like, you know, at the age of one, two, three, they have, a, have the strip 
I don't know if you've ever seen it, around the top of the wall, right? And it's got A, B, C, or it's got the, it's got the alphabet, and yep. it's up nice and high. So what we do know is that our memory, we have visual, auditory, kinesthetic, gustatory, and olfactory, but our primary way of taking information is visually, visually auditory, and kinesthetic. So our, uh, the way we see, the way we hear, and the way we feel. Visual memory works with our, when our eyes go up um, and to the left or to the right. So what I get people to do is when they're practicing, take this script, blow it up to far enough, to, to a big enough size that they can see it from about two meters away and put it up on the wall, linear, so left to right fashion as if you were reading normally, mm -hmm. and stand away from it and look up and lock it in. And if you've got any images, have them up there as well so that you start locking it naturally into your visual um, way of remembering and recalling information. Yeah. So just little things like that. Uh, and then obviously if you can then go from there to now aligning it to your video as well and aligning to your clicks, then every little thing is anchoring it to your physiology. And then you start to work on your actual body language. So when I say this, how does my hand move? What are my gestures? Normally when I work with people, I focus on three key areas, which are feet, hands, face. The feet are the fundamental foundations. So you'll notice a lot of people get on stage and for the first 30 seconds, they shuffle. You know, they don't know how or where to stand. If you start doing that, you're going to make yourself self-conscious straight away. Mm. So you need to do everything you can in your first 30 seconds to make yourself comfortable. And that might mean knowing word for word what you're going to say for your first 30 seconds, standing still with your feet shoulder width apart, and fig just figuring out what you want to do with your hands. So your hands will be nice and open and gesturing, welcoming behaviors, and you'll be smiling. Mm. Those sound easy, but to break those down, you know, you've got to re remember the first 30 seconds. You've got to walk on stage, turn, ground your feet, shoulder width apart, feet facing your audience, and then open your arms up nice and wide and give a big smile. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's a series of events that you have to do, but you've got to practice those as well. Mm -hmm. And no one's there to teach you to practice that. Yeah. Uh, unless, you know, listen to the podcast. Um, well, that's why it's so valuable to hear these from you. And I, I just want to echo that because I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people get up and start their talk and their hands are like this, you know, just crossed over and yeah. the body language is closed. And rather than this sort of, you know, I'm gesturing on the video here because we're videoing this, you know, with hands open, it's yeah. like a, I don't have anything to hide. You know, my hands are open. I come in peace. It's kind of basic, isn't it? But it goes more primitive ways of, of yeah. doing things, you know, which is I, I haven't got any weapons here. I'm coming with the truth. Yeah. That's it. You know, <laughs> so, uh, I'll, I'll just, I'll carry on that a little bit. So there's a, there's a guy I follow, Mark Bowden. He's an international expert in body language and, and human behavior. So I give, I give a talk, you know, when I do a, a public conference or event talk, I often talk about those key things. So he, he basically says that, you know, one, you have to, believe in evolutionary biology, but evolutionary biology says that 500 million years of, um, of collecting data has made us look for, you know, be really biased in the way that we interact with people. So, you know, like we're, we're constantly told now, uh, you know, not to be judgmental. It's like, it's, it's built into our DNA to judge, you know, and it's done out of purely out of safety and, and it's okay. He says that, what people are looking out for are four key indicators of how you are as a person. So you're either a potential friend, a potential enemy, a potential mate, 
And here's the bit that a lot of people I see, especially in the investment pitching, if you're not indicating strongly one of those three, then people are indifferent to you. You know, you, you don't come under one of those brackets, so you're fine. You just phase out and blur into the background. Yeah. And you'll see that at a lot of um, uh, networking events. You'll see people who are, you know, they're just over there in the corner and they're not behaving in any way, uh, you know, they might, it might be potential enemy a little bit because you're like, why are they over there in the corner? Um, but most of the time it's just indifference. So they need to be indicating one of those. And if you can consciously be indicating, it would obviously be potential friend. But uh, we, we have to be consciously aware of how we're doing that. So he goes a little bit further and he says, what happens is when a person's giving a talk, we've immediately, within seven to eight seconds, we've immediately decided whether they are a potential friend, potential enemy, or a potential mate. We're kind of hoping not to be triggering potential mate. You know, that's, sorry <laughs> for that. Um, but we definitely don't want to be doing potential enemy. Mm. But what happens is, as soon as a person has made that decision, they will cherry pick information based off confirmation bias to back up their, their pre-made decision. Right. And, and it's quite simple. So if, if I've already identified you as a potential enemy, you could, be, you could be, have the best scientific backing, the best graphs, the best everything, but I'm going to cherry pick out the smallest thing and go, and that's what makes you a potential enemy. That's why you're wrong. Right. And, then, and, and this could be the best speaker in the world. And the opposite is true, which is if I've identified you as a potential friend because of some of these things you've done, little tricks of the trade, mm. then you could be talking absolute rubbish. But because I've already made that decision, confirmation bias is I'm picking little bits of information, information to reaffirm why you're a potential friend, mm. why you're so good at what you do. And, and these are things that are happening unconsciously. So when I work with people in the, in the pitching, especially around the technology, it's all about trying to come across authoritative, you know, and by being more technically astute and coming across in that way, I'll get more credibility. And it's like, no, you won't because you haven't bothered to make friends. So Amy Cuddy, she's a Harvard psychologist. She's done some really great work around this and she's got some great books as well around physiology and, and body language. But her basic thing is to think of it in the way of in cavemen days, it was more important to know if a person was going to steal your stuff and kill you than it was to know if they could build a fire. So <laughs> trust came first always and competence came second. And right. this is where we see a mismatch in speakers. If they're trying to go for competence by showing their competence straight away, they're overlooking the, the rapport building with a group of people. So instantly you're creating a potential enemy, which is then making your audience cherry pick all the reasons why they don't like you. Mm -hmm. An example of that uh, would be, I wrote a case study on Edward Liebenberger. He's the director of digital for Jade Software. I think he's yeah director of digital. So he was, he was giving a lot of talks um, globally, you know, as a representative of Jade. And I'll give a description. He's six foot three. He's Austrian with a very, very harsh accent. And when I first met him, I did what I did with everyone. I'm like, okay, just hit me with what you've got. I'll have a look at it and we'll take it from there. One of the key things I noticed with Ed is that he would frown all the time. And, you know, a small person on stage, you don't notice it as much. A big person on stage, mm -hmm. six foot something, it just becomes so noticeable. Mm -hmm. And what was happening was instantly you tied that off with the Austrian accent that was really hard and you get potential enemies straight away. It's just like right in your face. 
and his physiology, maybe it was a little bit welcoming, but it was incongruent. So the body, the facial expressions were not matching the body. He could have done the big wide open arms, but there was still a frown. Right. So what our work was, was figuring out how to change that. Like, why is he frowning so much? And what I found was that Ed was thinking. He was thinking during, while he was talking. So one was he needed to practice it enough that he didn't have to think. Because then the, 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 fr- the, the furrowed brow goes away. And one of the key things I did to help with that was, I, and I didn't know, but I'd watched a video and he played basketball. So, and hence is six foot three. So I brought a basketball in and I made him dribble the ball while he was speaking. Right. There's no way that he could frown and dribble the ball. And what happened is he had a way, you know, he had a long-term anchoring to the sports and sports was competitive and, and you know, you would see him on the court smiling and running around and it was a whole different side of him. So we got that, we incorporated that through his speaking by using a ball. But we also had to change some of his scripting to, to be more inclusive as well. Mm. So, you know, because he was talking about artificial intelligence, uh, not everyone in the audience totally understood what he was talking about. So he just needed to add some examples that were more common because he was missing out on some of the audience. I mean, this, this is a case study that I've written, which is available anyway. for, for Yeah. You. Well, what we'll do in the show notes, we can put some links to anything that you'd like. So just send me any links and we'll put them in. The bit that I want to pick up on there, um, I, that confirmation bias, it's actually fascinating because right now we live in this polarized world in terms of politics. And I noticed that people will get up and particularly maybe in America, you know, the Republicans (laughs) and the Democrats. And it's almost like if the person is introduced as a Republican and you're a Republican supporter, then you, everything they say is, is good. But if it's the opposite, then everything they say is not good. And it's that it's kind of another example, isn't it? Of this. Yeah. Either all or nothing. And and we're seeing that now um, with the U S you know, um, but there's yeah. no better example right now of what's happening without going too far down the rabbit hole of politics. Yeah. In, so in, can I just pick up on something as well? Um, whenever I've seen you speak or you're helping people or, you know, you've helped me with impact lunches, you know, introducing things, you always seem to bring a certain element of joy to what you do. And I really appreciate it. You know, like you're having fun, you know, you'll put on some music while people are mixing or chatting and, and it, it's not a burden. It's more of a, hey, everybody, here, you know, it, talk, talk to us about that a little bit in terms of the level of energy that you bring to the context and the situation, because I think that's something lots of us miss out on. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I get excited, right? So um, there's, there's a fine line between fear and excitement. And I've always, I, I remember we did deliver this and it was, the only difference between fear and excitement, because our physiological response is the same, uh, you know, our, our breathing rate increases, our palms get sweaty, our heart rate goes up, you know, and the, it's exactly the same for fear as it exists for, for excitement. The only difference is our attitude towards the situation. So I, I get excited about being the person in the room who has the role of putting all of your own fears and anxieties to the side and becoming a conduit, a tool for bringing other people together. And that, that's what excites me. And I think it excites me because I, I, you know, we discussed earlier on, I would consider myself an ambivert. 
most people think of me as extroverted. You know, you have to be extroverted. You must love getting up on stage, love all the attention. And it's like, ugh, I'm a bit of both. You know, I, I do like getting up. I do, I get energy from groups, but I know that I have to give energy. And maybe, maybe this is the bit that we're talking about. The, if I'm running training or if I'm speaking, the first, we'll, we'll, do, we'll go down the track of training. The first 45 minutes, if I'm working for a date with a group, that whole amount of time is me giving vast amounts of energy. So I'm over the top demonstrating what I want people to do. People will only be as comfortable to, to within themselves and within the group to the level of comfort I demonstrate. So if, I, if my arms are really big and out wide and my smile is ridiculously large, it's because I know that they will mimic it, but they'll mimic it smaller than what I do. So if I'm all closed off and small and my energy is low, how can I expect energy to come from them? So what happens is perpetual, right? Perpetual motion. If I have a big injection of energy from myself at the outset, they become energized between themselves and then I feed off the energy. But if I stay really low energy, no energy is created. And you, you would have been in rooms where you can just feel there's no energy. And you can see the person who's speaking or delivering, they start to become really self-conscious. They're like, people aren't engaging, people aren't listening. And, and, and they, they, it creates a negative cycle where they start to doubt themselves. So in essence, the bigger and, and more you can be, the more you will create it. But it takes a level of self, a, a lack of self-consciousness that just takes practice. You know, you've, you've seen me do that stuff. And I use the tools to help me. So I know that music moves people at a physiological level. You know, you've got your alpha, beta, delta, theta brainwaves. It interrupts those. It puts people on a high and it, and it connects them to something else, a time of joy. Um, obviously, you want to use certain types of music to get certain outcomes. I certainly wouldn't think you would be using the theme song to Titanic if you wanted everyone to run around the room. So you've got to, you've got to get the alignment there. But no, I, I loved um, just being that conduit, you know. I, I think it, it, to a degree it brings me out of my shell as well. It forces me out of my shell. Mm. And it shows other people what's possible. Mm. And I think I, the reason I'm highlighting it is I, I've seen you do it and I think it's really critical. And it's something I've been trying to model more because I'm doing some facilitating for Institute of Directors. Yep. So, so there'll be 20 or 30 people in the room. And if I come in with the energy of, Hi, everyone. I'm Stephen. I'm here to talk to you about legal principles of being a director. You know, it's very different, isn't it? To, hey, everyone, I know you think this is the most boring subject, but I have news for you. You know, it yeah, just yeah. raises the level. And then if I can, I find a little bit echoing what you said. I find if I can get the first 10 to 15 seconds, if, if, it, if I can tell people like, oh, you know, then all of a sudden everything sort of flows Whereas if I don't nail that first, you know, um, first impressions, then it's not going to go well. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. And it takes, it, that doesn't happen by accident. And I think that's something you've picked up on with the work that we did around yeah. um, the, the lunches. It doesn't happen by accident. It's very well thought out and well planned. And you, as you practice more and more, you'll find certain ways of doing it will get better results and they just get better and better and better over time. Yeah. It, it does require practice. 
And the thing, the reason that I'm allowing us to continue talking is I think this is really critical for people and I'm hoping it's going to help them. And thank you so much for sharing so much because the reality is that, you know, we've been talking as if it's like, well, you're standing up in front of a hundred people or 50 people or whatever. But the reality is each of us are presenting every single day. If it's you one-on-one with a client, if it's you one-on-one with anyone, really, those are the same skills that need to be brought to it. Um, you know, it, it's not something that is only applicable for this one 15 minute talk that I do once a year. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, we are always, so this is, this is one of my opening lines for one of my talks, uh, word for word, whether we like it or not, we're constantly communicating, but mm. what messages are we sending? So we are always, and it, it, it takes a degree of self-awareness. Um, there are, there are a couple of things. I mean, I can probably add a couple of bits here. Yep. Uh, around self-awareness, so a couple of things I've seen done poorly in this environment, in this area. So there are two that stand out that I that I share with people generally, mm-hmm. which are I, I've seen two speakers. One was at a at an event where they they spoke really well. Their slide deck was fantastic, and what it was, it came it was passive aggressive. So this is something you sometimes see. Uh, they got to the end of their talk. And they asked for questions, Q&A. And there were a few questions. Obviously, they had an outcome that they wanted in their mind, but the audience didn't get to the place they wanted to go. And what happened was they just kind of the whole event that they curated to get liking, which they had built, was totally destroyed at the end because they said, the, the, the MC said, so are there any more questions? And obviously the question hadn't been asked that they wanted. And the MC said, okay, cool. And then this person said, that's it? No other questions? I just want to check, raise your hand if you understand everything I've just said. Right. It, it was done super aggressive. And the whole audience just kind of froze. You could feel when a room went cold. And they yeah. just looked at each other like, how are we supposed to respond to this? <laughs> yeah. And then everyone just kind of raised their hand. Whether they all knew exactly what was being asked of them or not. They just, it was like the safest thing to do right now to protect myself and to raise my hand. Because what happens if my hand's not raised? That person's going to point me out and go, so what part of it don't you understand? <laughs> so that was one. And it was, it, was, it was such a shame because the talk was so well done, but it, it, it was purely passive aggressive at the end. Mm. The other one that I saw was a, a speaker was speaking to a group of, of students. Now, students are fantastic. If you ever want to get feedback about your ability, speak in front of students. Because yeah. students aren't like us, as in they haven't learned to put the filter on yet, right? So if they get bored, they'll literally pick up a phone, look at it and go, whatever's on my phone is more interesting you than right. you are. And that's actually really good. That's feedback for you to go, at that point in my talk, they picked up their phones and were disinterested. And anyone in my mind should follow that. Like, take it as good feedback, run with it. Yeah. Some people get offended by it. You know, these young people today, they've got no attention. It's like, no, these young people are really just good indicators of when you've become boring. So I saw a person who saw the audience do it, and instead of going, right, let's pivot, because this is boring, they decided the best way to keep their attention is to shock them. So they slammed their fist on the table and the whole room just shook and everyone stopped, looked up from their phones. So the result was achieved. I've got your attention. 
And then the opposite happened. They turned their bodies self-protectively side on to the speaker to protect themselves as you would if you were being attacked. Right. And then just um, slid down in their chairs and looked at their phones even deeper and ignored the speaker. Like, right ignored because they knew what the person was trying to do. They were trying to use fear and anxiety to control the audience. Mm -hmm. So those are two cases that I've seen. And it was almost like, I think I framed it as passion, not demonic possession. You would swear that those two people at that time had been overtaken by demons. Like what is going on? What may, if you were to show them a video and go, what were you thinking? It would almost be like, I don't know. I wasn't even there at that point. Yeah. You know, these these are all things that we have to be aware of is being considerate of our audiences and not taking out our stresses because of the outcome we want. So, you know, that second one, if you want your attention, then you need to learn how to curate your content in a way that gets people's attention, especially young people. I mean, they've got an average attention span of 7 to 15 minutes. And most of us do. Adults do. Adults have just learned how to pretend that we're engaged as we stare off into the abyss. But we don't, you know, we shuffle and stuff, but we won't look at our phones because that would be rude. Right. Um, young people are fantastic. They're great for feedback, but we don't take it in that way. We are offended that they are not pretending like adults. Yeah. No, that's helpful. I've, I've actually, whenever I'm helping to organize conferences and things, people sometimes say, well, we'll give people a 45-minute slot to speak. And what I'm trying to say now is, no, let's not. <laughs> because you don't need 45 minutes. And if it's just going to be so much filler, um, let's give them seven minutes or 10 minutes or 12 minutes. And then they're forced to condense down what they want to say into that. Um, another thing, I'd just be keen on your observations, and we're kind of wrapping up here. But one of the things that I've noticed speakers do uh, who haven't done it that much is that they apologize too often when they're up front and, and they'll be like, Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I missed out this. So I didn't say that. And I always think to myself, no one here knows what you were going to say. Like, yeah. why are you apologizing? Cause I had no idea that you missed out that bit that you were going to do. Do you have any thoughts on that or? Yeah, for sure. Sure. So it's, so it's called a pre-frame <clears throat> and we, we have choices on how we want to pre-frame. So, it's, it's almost like a, it's a pre-made excuse that I'm going to do a terrible job, forgive me. But what happens is it's, what do we call it? We call them self-fulfilling prophecy. Let's go down that track. So if I open telling you that this talk is going to be kind of terrible because I didn't put much time into it. One, a potential friend, potential enemy, or indifferent. I'm, I'm picking potential enemy or indifferent, right? Because it's like, how disrespectful that you're standing up. So you're instantly going to get the outcome of they hate you already uh, or they're disinterested already. You, that's going to make you nervous and that's going to be bad for you. Instead, it would be practice, put the time, energy and effort in and get up there and go, this is my talk. Like, uh, but and maybe then, frame it at the beginning. Like, I am so excited to be here to share with you because yeah. then it's like, oh, what is it? I want to hear that <laughs> rather than I'm really sorry. I, I, I didn't spend as much time as I should have, but I'm going to tell you about this thing today, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm really nervous and, you know, sorry if I make mistakes and my slides are probably all over the place. It's like you've just pointed out, highlighted all the worst things for them to look out for and to expect. Yeah. So they, and, and it will come true. I mean, this is self-fulfilling prophecy. 
So no different to any form of psychology, what we, what we say to ourselves is the outcome we'll probably get. And I think, I think this ties into something else, which is, you know, there, there's heaps we could talk about, but the, the most important stories are the ones that we tell ourselves. And to me, this is a key factor, you know, uh, your childhood, your upbringing, your whatever it is, there are stories that you are telling yourself along the way. And those stories will dictate how you behave and who you become in the future. And much like any script, it's not written once and then that's the story for life. You can rewrite your script. And this is, this is a little bit bigger than just speaking. This is for everyone. If you have self-doubts around your ability to do something and you speak to yourself in that way, that is your narrative. That is the script that you've written and you become so good at saying it over and over that you don't even need your script anymore. You can just, it just runs without you. And you might even get up in front of an audience and, and accidentally say part of that script. I'm a terrible speaker. I feel really nervous. You're probably not going to enjoy this. So the idea would be, well, you can keep that script and you can keep that internal script as well, or you can choose to change it. If you change that internal script, the story that you're telling yourself, guaranteed you may not believe it, but after a period of time, you will start to behave in a way that reflects it. So I would say to people, change your story, change your life, essentially. If there's any part of what you're doing, then just change the narrative around it. And it's irrelevant whether you believe it or not. It's just what you keep telling yourself. And it comes back to the repetition and the practice, doesn't it? And totally. you say something again and again, then that, that is who you become or that is, you know, if you do believe in yourself, then if you, if you say it, eventually you will. <laughs> I, think the, I think the cool part with that, and this is maybe the bit that I'm passionate about, is I, I get to see deeper parts of people, right? So, and some quite well-known people, and I get, to, I get to see their fears and their anxieties, and I... I get to see them grow from wherever they are and their own narrative. And, and you would be surprised at the amount of high profile people I work with who share no different self-doubts to all the rest of us, you know, right. <laughs> you see them get on stage and you're like, wow, that's just incredible. The thing being is they have those self-doubts and fears. They just let them go once they step into that other place. And I, I think we all have that. But I get to see, no matter whether I'm working with someone who's going to be speaking to a group of five or a group of 5,000, I get to see growth through all of them. And the growth is as exciting for the people who are speaking with 12 as it is for the people who are speaking with 5,000. It's as exciting. And what you find interesting is the, the changes are not too dissimilar. The people that are here who are novice, who are wanting to make some changes, uh, overcoming things that the person who's been doing it for a long time are wanting to overcome as well. Yeah. And that must, yeah, like you say, that must be very fulfilling for you, particularly looking back at the initial conversations, you know, and helping people on a journey to then be able to present much better. That's really cool. Well, for yeah. sure. For sure. Because, I mean, at some stage, all of us have been told what I was told. Here's my closing loop, right? At some stage, all of us would have been told uh, that our voice doesn't matter, you know, especially our generation who grew up with children, uh, children should be seen and not mm -hmm. heard. <laughs> you can finish the sentence the same as I can. And I think that's one of the things is that 
in our own way, we're all trying to express ourselves, um, our thoughts, feelings, and emotions at a deeper level. And we're all trying to do it. And we're all battling with the concept of what does authenticity really look like? No, that's great. What I do on the podcast is I close the loop by referring back to the start of the conversation. So in this case, I just want to say thanks for coming on the podcast and just hearing about your childhood. You know, I didn't know much about your childhood and and what that was like and then your teenage years. And it it feels to me like all those skills that you developed of empathy and, and meeting people and the relationships, that's all now outworking in this really unique way of being speaker coach here in New Zealand so it's really fun to hear the journey and I think for lots of people listening you've given them a huge amount of tips and and um, if people listen in I think you'll have helped them improve their speaking Um, so I just want to say thank you so much and um, what we'll do is in the show notes we'll put some links to websites or any anything else that you would like to share but thanks for joining me I, I have, so thank you, thank you. I mean, I, I've, I've listened to your podcast and I've always been uh, excited. Uh, I love the, the way that you structure questions and I love the depth that you go to and how you end up in different areas. I've, I've always loved that. So thank you for inviting me on. I'm very privileged to be part of it. The, um, I have free resources. So something I've, I've put together in the background is there are many free resources. So a lot of the stuff that I've talked about is accessible through um, through the website, but I'll, I'll drop in links to this. So right. it's, uh, there's a eight week sign up where you you know you once a week you'll receive eight um, one thing that'll help you for creating talk, and then there's some really small stuff around NLP speaker coaching tips. So the physiological stuff there as well. Yeah. M- most definitely make it welcome for people. I think all of us can communicate better where possible. Mm, no, I agree. And I think the, the key thing is that uh, in all of our life, you know, whether we're standing up pitching for money or we're presenting to our boss or whatever it is, mm. these are skills which are transferable and relatable. So, yeah. 100% transferable. Definitely. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> well, I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Michael. I know for me, there were several things that stood out. And I just loved hearing about his life story and how it's all really richly led to what he does today. If you enjoyed this, you might want to check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog, because there's more than 170 of them there. Until next time!